Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So great to see all, oh my gosh, all these different faces <laughs> since I sat down. <laughs> Hello. Um, I am um, really excited to be here. I, um, I want to warn everybody first, I'm hoping that I don't have a coughing fit and I don't, I just am turning the corner on a cold and if I start coughing um, or explode or something, it's, <laughs> don't mind me. <laughs> um, but I think I'm, I think I'm on the mend. Um, I want to talk um, a little bit first um, before I dive in about the backstory of this book. Um, and people keep asking me, you know, well, how did you come up with the idea, or how did it come together? And really, you know, you hear the phrase um, "driveway moment," and you know how people will sit in their car and listen to a radio show until they hear the end of it, or a song until they hear an end of it. Um, this was more gridlock moment, <laughs> where I had a commute for about three and a half, four years, um, that was two hours one way. Um, without traffic, it was, well, it could be 90 minutes or less. Um, and in that time, I realized I was very, I was detaching from the city. I was no longer, I didn't really know what was going on because when I was at home, you know, and could do things around town, I was too tired. And it made me feel like, am I really living in a city or I'm just commuting from two boxes? And that was really frustrating for someone who, you know, in my entire life, even before I became a reporter, which forces you to be in every little nook and cranny of a region, um, if you're lucky. Um, here I was, you know, only going two places, and that just didn't feel right anymore. Um, so I made a pact with myself, and I decided that I was going to go out and re-examine the city and see really what was there. And because I was starting not to like L.A., and it was more in a, an abstract sense, I was not liking L.A. Um, so every weekend I would get up Sunday morning and go visit a new neighborhood. Um, it could have been a neighborhood I used to live in or a neighborhood I hadn't been in in a while or a neighborhood I'd never been in and I'd first drive around and then I'd get out and I'd walk and I'd make notes. <laughs> and um, But then it started to become this really regular thing and I was writing about it but I was also photographing not just vistas or um, not just uh, even buildings, it was like little details of things that reminded me of my childhood. Or um, like, you know, downtown, if you're walking downtown and you look down, you know, you'll see the names of the old businesses that used to be there. And that always would kind of push me into this memory of something and would be so vivid. And I thought I have to make sure that I have a store of these things because they will be gone. And in the time that I've been doing this, it's been about five or six years, there's so much stuff that's been gone. So the photographs that are some of these are from 
of these walks around um, the city, the drive around the city. Sometimes I will pull off and snap something. Sometimes I miss things and then I've told myself if there are things that I've missed, that means that's supposed to be written about. It really wasn't intended to be a photograph. Um, while I was starting to sketch these um, vignettes about sense of place, and some, some, of the, some of them did turn into magazine pieces, uh, newspaper pieces, um, pieces for websites. Um, I also was listening to conversations among other Cali Californians, other Angelinos. And in fact, it happened today. I was listening to Mike talking to a friend who was about this store and saying, yeah, if you talk to people over 70, they still call this place Chatterton's. And I realized how many of us are still calling things by their old names. You know, like in my old neighborhood, um, I lived around the Crenshaw Mall, and that's what we called it. Oh, it's the Crenshaw Mall. Now, it's not been the, the Crenshaw Mall in years, and neither has Martin Luther King, which was Santa Barbara Avenue um, before. And, but people still refer to it as Santa Barbara. So I realized like, there's so many Angelinos who are living in a city that's really in our mind and of our mind. And you don't have to correct us. We all kind of know what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, it's like, why? yeah, and you're even given directions that way. So um, I was sort of intrigued by that as well. So here are these cities living inside of us. And we all know them. And they're all very vivid. Um, so. That's why I really wanted, I thought, okay, I want to take this on and I want to seek deep into that. I wanted to, what is the LA that gets missed in um, the interpretations of place? Um, or um, what is the, um, or expectations of place? I wanted to express a concrete um, sense of the rich sense of place around here, not the the definitions or the assumptions that I had grown up with about, you know, LA is just surf and sea and, <laughs> I mean, surf and um, ski and, and, um, and Hollywood. <laughs> and I wanted to explore how place shapes us and, what, and really what that meant. And that meant I wanted to be in conversation with other Angelinos and we would just kind of go back and forth. Um, so the book explores a range of things. Um, the language we use to describe place, the mix of urban and wild environment and that coexistence, um, the neighborhood stories that, um, that are vanishing with gentrification, um, what the odd gift of sprawl and very distinct, varied distinct landscapes give us. So when you make that choice, when we used to be able to meet in the middle, because it was easier to do, um, what, what did you exchange in that experience? Um, so this book, After Image, is a result of that wandering and walking and thinking and the conversations. So um, this afternoon, I'm going to read a little bit from the introduction, and then I'm going to read a little bit from one of the essays. City of the Future's Past. Sometimes when I turn a corner here in Los Angeles, I'm haunted by a sensation. It's pure feeling. That jittery excitement that accompanies waiting for someone or something dear to arrive. It's pressing closer, the suggestion of it, 
but still too far off to see a sure shape or contours. And then, maybe you blink or, in, or, or are in some other way distracted, and somehow, when you refocus, it's passed by. That moment is receding, gone, impossible to recover. That's often how I feel about Los Angeles. There was something complex and beautifully imperfect that we were building in a wild mix of languages, cultures, and experimentation. We would try to build bridges across difference and the distances of fear or hate. So many of us brought rituals and language and expectations from elsewhere. And in this new proximity, something grew out of the soil for a while. For some time, I truly thought the Los Angeles that was on the way would be the best of all of that, even with the chaos and rough edges and failures of imagination. What were we, what were we building with our bare hands, broken and or Im improvised languages and bad backs? What I'm left with now is an arrangement of streets that if I squint, look familiar. But they are cul-de-sacs of fading memory a circle of what-ifs. Too often I hear stories about people being nudged to the edges or pushed out of their hard-won homes. And more frequently than I like to acknowledge, I hear someone grousing about the unfriendly new people or lamenting the tossed-out bits and pieces of a former life here, ghosts of rituals and memories that they step over as they go on with their day. Add to that list of laments, too many discussions about exit strategies, quality of life issues, traffic, violence, expense, intolerance, and impatience, sharpened to abrasiveness. And it's then I must stop and ask, not them, but myself, not when did I become the person marooned in punishing traffic at all hours, banging on the steering wheel, but when was the last time I wasn't? As deeply as I love and have come to understand my native city, its size and shape and equivocal nature, recently as I move through it, I have become more and more perplexed. I seem to have lost Los Angeles. It's as if the city were a set of keys I've somehow misplaced. I keep frantically retracing my steps, hoping to locate it. Something's lost and must be found. As a native Angelino, I've grown accustomed to the shape-shifting landscape. I have spent most of my life here thinking about sense of place, traveling across wide, wide stretches of it, burrowing deep into it, attempting to write the many cities Los Angeles has become onto the page. Much of my writing has been an attempt to pull Los Angeles into focus. For those on the outside, yes, but often really for myself. More quickly now, however, as the skies above me have become a busy latticework of construction cranes and towering skeletons of drywall and steel, I find myself knocked off balance by the dramatic, sometimes wholesale upheavals. As I pass through what should be familiar thoroughfares, I see both hints of the past and previews of the future. The present has always been difficult to hold on to. We live with memories of memories. More than ever, I find myself stopping to consider what all that subtraction might actually amount to. When I say I'm from Los Angeles, what precisely does that mean? When change and recalibration of the present is a constant process, what does it mean when you live 
around or at the fringes of an image that is projected. What does it mean to understand yourself amid the clutter of outsiders' expectations of Los Angeles? In the last few years, I have been making a ritual out of recording that vanishing sense of place in essays and interviews and photographs. Something at the edges of my own consciousness told me I might need to. I started rising early Sundays when the city was emptied out or it was just blinking awake so I could better see what was before me. Close up, what is that day-to-day -day city? I wanted to get back to it, reconnect maybe. I wasn't interested in what is beamed out as the stock imagery of Los Angeles, either a montage of upscale delights or a blur of dysfunction, but the details, experiences, and people I've come to know and associate as home. I had come to a destination in my mind. I wanted to find and catalog what and who is still here. What is Los Angeles when you pull the image of the city away? What are you left with? What is the Los Angeles that lives inside of us? The one, the afterimage, that lingers in the mind's eye. In that time, I have been looking squarely at what persists. These photos and notes and dovetailing conversations that comprise afterimage are evidence of life lived here as nowhere else. These vignettes express the way I've been experiencing the city of late as I pass through places that possess something so unique, so idiosyncratic, a scent, a cast of light, a melody tumbling out of a moving car window that allow me, if only briefly, to float within an old sense of familiarity. I suppose, as writers often do, I am trying to write myself back home. Wandering the city, taking photographs, I realize has been a way to look for connections. But mostly I realize my quests have been attempts to find remnants of the place I grew up in before it all slips away. In the midst of this, all of this reconsideration, I've, I'd been asked to sit on yet another panel about changing Los Angeles, and the earnest moderator asked each of us, two transplants, two natives, what Los, Angel what Los Angeles we wanted to live in. I, find my, I found myself pausing, trying to call up an answer that didn't feel glib, but one that felt revealing and from the heart. It took a long minute, but a vision came that one I see both in my rear view and still floating just ahead in what seems at times an unreachable distance. It's a Los Angeles of frank, frank coexistence, of pluralism that we have to make and make room for instead of always reflexively comparing it to other places or twisting it into some new fantasy we will never achieve. After all of the wandering and long conversations and writing, I can't quite say if this narrative, the photographs, the essays, the testimonials, is a love letter or a Dear John note. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Get out of here, LA. <laughs> I feel a strong, sense of the, a strong sense of ambivalence about Los Angeles that I've never felt before. I'm not alone. I hear it among other long-time deep-rooted Angelinos. This dissonant harmony, a lament, threading just beneath the sunny surface, and to not just words, but actions. I sat on the floor, wrapping passed-down china in newsprint, helping friends carefully pack moving boxes. I listened to last straw testimonials, farewells from old colleagues or neighbors who have had it Well, with, well, does it really matter? It's time, as one friend offered exasperatedly. 
now before all I'm doing is living in memory. I understand. Finding balance here, a sense of belonging, and a sense of place, I know, is both a constant practice of reclamation and a ritual of remembering. So for now, here is my Los Angeles, my here and now Los Angeles. So that's, <coughs> that's the intro. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I debated about what I was going to read today. Um, I kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But I'm going to read a piece here because there's going to be some resonance for several people here. For Nina and for Janet, <laughs> especially. Um, because it, it deals with the place that we spent time in. Um, and, um, and I'm just going to read a little bit of this one. It's called um, Between Here and There, Dispatches from the Third Place. It's late, and I'm up, scrolling in the dark. Not long ago, that C would have been replaced by a T. And even deep into a Sunday night, after a long wander, I would have been ringed around the glow of some restaurant foretop with friends from distant posts across the Los Angeles basin. Tonight, as it's happening more and more frequently, I'm making rounds virtually. Among the filtered instant captures crowding my feed on one social media app, a succession of beach sunsets, craft cocktails festooned with herb sprigs, the overstuffed to tilting burgers on glossy brioche buns, something stops my scrolling thumb. Out of one image's fuzzy, dark murk rises a simple detail a painted gold variegated star nestled within a blood red heart. The vantage is so close, the context is stripped away. But that floating heart and star look not just naggingly familiar, but familial. The image gives me misgivings. Its caption answers my fears. Are these not the places that make our city full of heart and memory and sensory experience? The poster asks. More than trend, more than food as a vessel, or development, or monetary hot investment, she continues. You guys, these are the places that we're losing. That star, that heart, the overspill of words crowded below. It was a eulogy for a destination that had long been part of me. Farewell, cha-cha-cha, she signs off. This news registers sharp and loud inside me. For years, I joked to friends that cha-cha-cha was my kitchen table. But really, it was an essential coordinate within my LA cosmos. When Cha-Cha-Cha Cafe first opened in the late 1980s, brainchild of business partners Mario Tamayo and, ch and chef Terribio Prado, the location was considered to be far-flung. <laughs> At the very edges of imagination. <laughs> That lent to its mystery, its cachet. Crowning the corner of Melrose and Virgil Avenues in East Hollywood, it stood out along the strip dotted with metal shops, a car wash, laundromats, and tire stores. The tiny, once plain Jane storefront flirted with passerby. The owners frequently boosted its street presence with fanciful paint jobs, fanciful paint jobs, powder blue, goldenrod, Chaparelli pink, enhanced further by other whimsical facelifts, corrugated metal, siding bent into Susian zigzags, palm fronds sprouting every which way like exotic headdresses, I'm sorry, like exotic headdress plumage, 
Cha-cha-cha was always a party in progress. Flowing cumbia sailed over the speakers, pitchers of sangria and platters of inky peppery jerk chicken and pork balanced on the able palms of waiters, drifted above our heads. The interior, a mix of floral print, oil cloth table coverings, and mismatched chairs, was surrounded by hand-fashioned assemblage pieces, elaborate altars, shadow boxes, tucked into discreet nooks. The roof leaked, even in the gentlest rain. And for all of those seemingly bottom bottomless sangrias, the only downfall, there was only one stall apiece for men and women. But you may do, because it was cha-cha-cha. Position equidistant between my home and work, cha-cha-cha wasn't simply a pit stop, although it may have begun that way. Initially, my head had been turned by its busy tropical menu, which embraced the cuisine of South and Central America, Cuba, and Jamaica, but I felt hardest for its freewheeling and unpretentious ambiance. On any given night, its cramped space was a feast of post-work talk. You could eavesdrop in the on in the trenches organizers or off-duty LAPD officers. City Hall and LA County Metropolitan Transit Authority employees sat shoulder to shoulder with the nightly news talent from the television stations nearby. Not that I could report on any of it. Even still, as a young reporter, I knew I'd hit gold. The inner workings of LA spread before me and I would be well fed. Seven days a week from 8 a.m. until business, both formal and extracurricular, happened here. Most significantly, the restaurant was at a crossroads, was a crossroads, one of the few distinctly multi-ethnic meeting spots where LA's diversity was on a vivid display. I knew not simply as a participant or observer, but as an African-American journalist writing about race and place, that this too was, was manna. It was LA as its best self. To think I'd never walk through that gate with the heart or dodge the, run, or dodge the runoff from a sudden cloud burst was painful to fathom. So much history there, so much learning and becoming in the space of long conversations tossed across a wobbly second-hand table. Already, 2016 had been rife with monumental loss. The central pillars of my youth were falling like tired trees, writers, singers, activists who helped me forge a sense of myself. It was wrenching enough to lose a mentor, the voice, the guiding hand, but losing a place, a hangout, that essential third place that played host to your own self-making, that packed a surprisingly similar, disorienting body blow. As cities goes, as cities go, Los Angeles, it seems, sheds its built history faster than most. As a native who has negotiate, negotiated this reality for decades, I thought I'd become inured, made peace with this brutal fact. I'd witnessed so many landmarks go, grand hotels, department stores, writers' residences, but there are, so, but there are these special spots that connect us, that span generations, and therefore become repositories of vivid collective histories. As you move through the city over time, you come to understand that the notion of vastness here is double-edged. I like the sense of possibility implied with a late-night drive through emptied streets that might pull you into a corner of the region you knew nothing about. Discovery was enabled by chance and open-endedness, a flow you could fall into. Vastness also meant that you may never get back to that gym you uncovered. It also may mean you'll fail to find the time to revisit an old neighborhood you'd explored so thoroughly, 
You, you'd explored so thoroughly that you'd memorized it. Place, a working sense of it, was made up of not just the streets, but also the people you encountered, their stories, their memories, their battles. Sometimes when someone references an intersection, not the streets, but the face drifts back. I wonder what happened to the men and women who passed my Café Con Leche across the worn counter most mornings for a decade at Café Tropical. Did Sparky, the artist who sketched a population of beach cronies and cafe philosophers on nubby two-ply cafe napkins at the old Rose Cafe in Venice, ever get a big break? As traffic and density rewrite our understanding of a city, too often we are pulled to places of convenience rather than seeking out those that speak some soul-deep pull. I miss the strolling, the wandering, even still, we find our physical comfort zones make our rituals. Each of us gravitates towards something specific. Some look simply for expediency, others for conviviality. For me, the best third place, that let's meet in the middle spot, provides a sense of community. In a city that is often derided for having no center, what third places and the folks who work in and frequent them provide is context and connective tissue. With them, you don't feel as anonymous. They reframe and shape our connection to the larger city, filling in the missing parts of a story you can't access first glimpse. This requires a loyalty on your part. It coaxes a little more out of you than a tip on the counter. Mondays were my cha-cha-cha roosts, my table tucked into a far corner in the, in the palm frond adorned patio, gave me a clear view of all comings and goings. I was enough of a regular that in the years before cell phones or online check-ins, friends would call the restaurant if they were looking for me, <laughs> knowing that there was a best odds chance that I'd be there. While I'd often meet up with colleagues work, post-work to commiserate or celebrate, there was always a moment when the servers would slide by to catch us up on their own lives, schoolwork, side businesses, neighborhood struggles. I watched one server bring his young son in over time. He grew up before our eyes, first shadowing him as a busboy, then waiting tables himself. He would marry, start a family, buy a house. His father proudly reported each new step along the way. You felt attended to on every level, even the valet who orchestrated the cars in a way that felt as insolvable as a Rubik's Cube. He always remembered without the ticket whose car was whose. On chilly nights, he'd sometimes be in a thin, short-sleeved shirt. Tequila is my sweater, he joked. <laughs> you hoped. <laughs> as you handed over your keys. But I'll never forget his largesse. One evening while I dined, <clears throat> excuse me, he detected a flat on my left front tire and then changed it, presented it, a done deal. No, not just a kitchen table, but home. These third place voices, the waiters, chefs, busboys, bartenders who always had a good word, an insight or cautionary tale, 
were as important to me in parsing the city as the scholars who dis dissected it or the novelists who tried to fix it on the page. These men and women with whom I sat on stools and near the loading dock beyond the kitchen taught me about their Los Angeles. I learned about the many layers of the city and through them I began to envision it as a region as deep as it was, as it was wide. I learned about sponsorship and immigration and steps to acquiring language from ESL to kitchen Spanish. I heard stories about the intricacies of moving through the maze of naturalization. I helped busboys write letters to landlords or their child's teacher. I learned about front and back of house tensions and discrimination, the hierarchies of accents, and which ones were more desirable for front of house jobs. I learned about life between here and there, being seen and unseen. I listened first as a customer, then a journalist, and later a friend. And that's going to stop there. <laughs> Thank you. Are there any questions? <laughs> no questions? Oh. So uh, what gives you, what gives you optimism?